title for the evening talk is Love Unbound. Before I get into the talk itself, let me just preface it by saying what I understand to be the role of Dharma talks as the ones we give, or speaking for myself, the ones I give, like this one. I don't have a sense of ever being able to transmit to anybody some gospel truth, some absolute truth, which would be unknown unless I so say it. Quite the contrary. I have a sense that what I say, if it's useful, and sometimes it is, it's only because those who hear it have already in some way experienced that, understood that, have a sense of that, know it, but perhaps has the, they haven't taken notice of that. So the purpose of the talk is to help you take notice. I could almost say, sit up and take notice. And if, if not, if, if what I say rings no bell, some things that I say do not ring a bell, well, fine. I just, just hear them as one hears things pass by. This talk was prompted by an article I read in, in a recent, uh, in, in the most recent Turning Wheel, issue of the Turning Wheel, a publication of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And this woman talks about the relationships that she and her husband have with their son, Josh age eight. And she quotes uh, Josh saying, I feel I'm in my family, in the love of my family. The love of my family is very soft and warm, but it's very hard. We are all binded together, sick, quote, unquote, binded together, binded together like a rock that cannot be split into three pieces, you, dad, and I. The talk was all, this talk of mine is also prompted by some friends who visited a very recent weekend, and in whose family the same situation was re-enacted. A relationship between mother and son about the same age as Josh, which again was hard, was sticky. And th there was always m wanting more from both sides in that relationship that never any satisfaction. It was, it was hurtful to them and to those of us around. 
So I was prompted to inquire, to ask myself, how do we get into such binds that, that the love becomes hard? That the love, instead of being freeing, becomes bondage. It came to me that the way we get into such binds is not very different from the way we get into the prison of the self. I was talking this morning, describing this morning, a description that I find useful, describing this fabrication of the self as a fabrication of a, of a show, of a theater piece, where we assign ourselves and the other people in the, our lives roles. We, we fix a script to, which specifies what we're going to say, how we're going to act under this or that circumstance, and what's even more difficult, how are others going to act under this or that circumstance? There is then an acting out of things, but also a parallel inner representation of this particular theatrical piece, where everybody, as I say, has a very specified role. In fact, uh, this description is not very different, I think, from the description that a contemporary psychoanalysts who are in what's called object relations theory offer. They, they talk a lot and investigate a lot. What is this inner representation of the outer world doing in our minds? And how we manipulate that. And when we allow ourselves to be trapped into this inner representation and acting out of it, it feels as if outside the script of that play, we don't exist. In fact, life of ourselves talking about construction of self, and of the family, talking about construction of family, does not exist unless it follows that particular pattern. As children come into the world, whatever the parent's script is, or the family's script is, is taught to them. It's modified somehow, they have some influence too, but it's, it's really very much imposed on them. And, and the child soon learns to attach to that, just as a child learns to attach to things in life. I, I've been very taken by a description, the Buddha's, the Buddha's description of 
how children get started this way in attaching to things and to sensations, to feelings, to whatever. It says in the Mahima Nikaya, that is to say in the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, one of the texts says as follows. The mother carries the embryo in her womb for nine or ten months with much anxiety as a heavy burden. You have to allow for the cultural perceptions that may still be true, may not. Then, at the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood, for the mother's breast milk is called blood in the noble one's discipline. When he grows up and his faculties mature, the child plays at such games as toy plows, tip cat, somersaults, toy windmills, toy measures, toy cars carts, I suppose, and toy bow and arrow. Translation must have been difficult. When he grows up, his faculties mature still further, and his faculties mature. The youth enjoys himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, with forms cognizable by the eye, etc. It goes to the various senses. And then, talking about the eye, he says, on seeing a form with the eye, he lusts after it, if it's pleasing, he dislikes it, if it's unpleasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body unestablished, with limited mind, and he does not understand as it actually is, the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom, wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. And, and so on, and he goes into, into the whole understanding of attachment. Attachment to things. And in the case, and of course also attachment to to views, to opinions, to, to ideas of how things are and the terms that I've been describing, attachment to the script that defines how he, she is. And of course, anybody who's been practicing, doing this practice for a while knows a lot and has encountered the teachings and the experience of this fabrication of self. I don't want to harp on that. What I'm saying is that the fabrication of family identity is not that different, only that the unit is different. 
footnote, a bumper sticker I run into, run behind actually, um, uh, just a few weeks ago. I thought it was very strange. It says, I'm a proud parent of an honor student at Fordham Prep. I never heard of Fordham Prep. My reaction is, so what? But it, it is part of that fabrication of family. And, and so we create structure, we identify with it, we brag about it. And this entity, entity becomes, can become, can become, not necessarily, but can become an obstacle for a free life. Particularly when we fail to update the script, to actualize the script, to allow for change to occur, to allow for hatching to occur. I use the term hatching because that's what, again, Josh of Josh's mother uses when she describes a game that she plays with uh, Josh. She says, when Josh was in preschool, one of his favorite games used to be Baby Bird Hatches Out, in which he would burrow under the covers in the morning and make muffled peeps and chirps my baby bird is getting ready to hatch out. I'd cry in scripted delight, and he would poke an arm through the comforter, wriggly free, wriggle feebly out of his egg, and collapse in my lap, gazing up into my face. We repeated this game ritualistically for for months. So you can see that in this particular family, although there is a sense of hardness, there's a recognition, and there's an exploration, of course. This has to go back and forth. And the hatching is being played out and explored. But there is resistance to this, what I'm calling hatching now. The, the, the difficulties in letting go, as the Buddha was saying in that text. Or to use uh, Marcia's expression, instead of practice, practicing impermanence, we, we lean towards practicing permanence sometimes. Permanence meaning no flexibility, no change. We tend to adopt a, a rule of behavior within the family and not update that to the changes that are happening. At times, of the various parties involved, this is a situation where a number of people are involved, one person is ready for change, but the others are not. Or, or other is not. Then there's, there are things that get into the way of change that are 
difficult, but need to be recognized. And some of them fall under the heading of unfinished business. Unfinished business, almost by definition, frees us into one stage and doesn't let us move on. If expectations, we had expectations of somebody, and if these expectations are not met, and if we continue to cling to them, there's, there's no movement. That's, all, that's always there, coming up. Sometimes there's this obsession with changing the past. With, with holding on to a judgment of another family member. This, this often happens with grown-up children towards the parents. And of course the parents towards the grown-up children. There's still, I mean, a lot of time has passed and they're still holding on to things that are not happening anymore. Directing these expectations towards people who don't exist anymore. Basically. The name exists, but the persons have changed. So, there are many things that make it difficult to allow for change, to let go. Of course, not to underestimate that. Of course, to acknowledge that and the need to look at that which is in our way. And another very important factor is fear, just plain fear of change. So things have gone, have gone in a bearable way up to now with this system. What if we drop it? And I'll have another opportunity, I hope, to talk about this in, in the retreat, talk about fear. So, there are resistances to hatching, or whatever, to change really, to go through the process, one could say through molting, perhaps it's a more clear image, like snakes and other animals which drop their skin when they outgrown it, and they develop another one to again be shed. This constant shedding of that which has been outgrown. How do we do it? How do we help this process out? So that the fetus becomes an infant, the child, the infant becomes a child, the child becomes an adult. And again the cycle starts again, they form a couple, etc. One, I think, skillful and useful way of, of helping through this Stages are the rites of passage. Well, you know, they're, they're not very fashionable nowadays. We, we don't uh, have 
many ceremonies to remind us, to send signals to each other that this is now complete and we go to the next stage. But we have some, of course, some of course. Birthdays are helpful. Around here you see children showing their fingers, five, four, whatever, four, five, whatever. And, and they are, they're sending a message, I've changed, look. And we celebrate that, and of course we celebrate weddings and and we Catholics celebrate communion and, uh, and there's uh, bar mitzvah and, and all kinds of rites and, and not uh, last but not least uh, preparation for death and the rites that accompany not I don't mean the funeral I mean the preparation for death and the funeral too of course quite important. And in all this rites of passage, so much richer in tribal societies, still existing in our society, of course I talk about rites there, we have one right there, an altar. It's not a one of passage, but it's a way of celebrating something too. In, in all this rites of passage, the message is to let go. To let go of this fixed identification. For one person alone, identification with image of self in the family, identification with her image of the family, what the family is, what it would be, what's expected of it. And of course within the family, identification with the role. Roles that sometimes are, are quite uh, fixed. And then we, we become that role. not a question of, of not doing the work or whatever needs to be done and, but it's, it's a question of becoming the role. A few weeks ago there was a, a program in PBS with a, a woman Claudia Shear and it was a monologue and she was talking about uh, her 64 jobs described each one of them. The, that particular one was a 65th now. And, uh, and she said very clearly, I mean, very convincingly from the dialogue, from the monologue, she says, no one is a waitress, no one is an actress, no one is a salesperson, no one is a prostitute. Clearly. Yeah. yeah, far more than all that. But each one of those things. So, 
the holding on to role, the holding on to past, the holding on to an identity that dates from the past. That's that by definition of identity is not generated in the moment. It's something that we we buy into because we feel that without it we cannot come. I can't remember exactly how long ago or how old I was. I may have been in the forties when I used to visit my mother in Baltimore. I lived in New York and I used to go to visit her in Baltimore where she was living with my sister. And my mother might have been, well, she was well over 70. I think she was probably 18, I think. And always she insisted that she wanted me to see the letters I had written to her when I was little. I, at that time, I, was, I had absolutely no skills. I had no understanding of, of uh, even psychology, let alone the spiritual aspect of life. But anyway, I had no particular skills, but I was horrified at the idea. I, I understood very well what she was saying to me, because she was also saying it. But I used to be, I remember her words, this golden boy that you were. And she wanted me to be that golden boy back. And I was horrified by the thought. I wasn't quite sure what that golden boy was, but it was clear that it wasn't me. She made that very clear to me. <laughs> and, and, well, I, I just always refused. That's all I can say. I don't know. I don't know that that was the right or the wrong thing to do. That's all I could do. I refused. I refused to look at the letters that I had written when I was little. I had the sense that I'd get trapped in those letters. But she couldn't relate to, to me grown up anymore. Because letting go is, is not ignoring all that which happened. Certainly not ignoring the past, not ignoring the recent present. I was very struck by my six-year-old, one of my six-year-old granddaughters at the birthday party of her sister. She came into the room and proclaimed, well, cheerfully, I thought, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. It's so beautiful. Just in the instant of saying I'm jealous, it was clear she couldn't be jealous anymore. But 
an instant before. Clearly she was. She wasn't making that up. Came from her heart. And in a moment she said, it was gone. So, and there she got a lot of security. I'm just saying that. A lot of security. It resonated up with us. I mean, she could pick up the love and everybody and, and recognizing. She was jealous, but it was all right. So the, the other places to look for security that are not identity, are not the clinging. And, and the one way of describing these places opening to love. The question is, are we ready for that? As little Gabby was, are we ready for that? Sense is that if I don't hold on within myself, within the family, if I don't hold on within myself, I'll go to pieces. If I don't hold the family, the family will go to pieces. Of course, we take this going to pieces as a, as a very negative thing. But think of it. Think of it in terms of, of, of the Dharma, for instance. The Buddha, when he was asked, or he, when he wanted to describe our personality, but in some translations it's called the personality package. He went on with grain and made little piles of grain. There, and that is in who we are. Five piles of grain, which later became known as the five aggregates precisely because of that demonstration of five kandas or skandhas in things in Sanskrit. In other words, the description is of us as grains, as pieces. And, and the acknowledgement of all these pieces in ourselves of all these aggregates in ourselves is essential to understand who we are. And, and we need to do the same thing with the family. Only that there's five piles of grain for each member of the family. So there's a lot of grains, a lot of pieces. And differences. But, but going to pieces in this sense is, doesn't mean falling apart. On the contrary, it's finding the reality that allows us to respect the self and the family as a community, community of all these aggregates. 
So this community has to encompass a, a great variety of entities, of behaviors, even some behavior that may not be deemed appropriate at times, in ourselves and in others, but it is. Needs to encompass change, which I, what I was calling hatching before. So, if we have all these pieces, members of the family, different members of the family, different pieces of ourselves, what keeps them together? What keeps them from falling apart? The word I will use, and, and it's a word that's tricky, but the word I'd use is, is love. Unconditional love. I say the word is tricky because, of course, we mean different things. I don't mean the love that's a fantasy. I don't mean the, the love that we, where we invest ourselves and, and where we create an, a special identity for the person that we direct this love to. I'm talking about love that expects nothing in return seeks nothing, clings to nothing, puts no condition. And, and in the process creates no suffering. Is this a figment of my imagination? Am I inventing I assure you that I'm not, and I, it doesn't matter what I say. What matters is your experience, of course, as I said at the beginning. And the experience, of course, comes from human encounters within the family and with all the people that you love. It, it also comes from the practice. And this cannot be underestimated. In the practice, there are times, say in the sitting, where we can open up to, to a force that comes, we don't know from where, but we feel sort of overwhelmed by it, inundated by it. And again, my words, are of no significance unless the experience has been there. Even a, an intimation of that experience. And from what I hear, many people who are in the sittings have felt suddenly this unconditional willingness to give. Willingness to love oneself and others and whoever it is. Whoever comes into the field of attention.
And of course there's this this saying that love is blind. So how are we going to trust? I recently received a letter from a young woman who was in a retreat that I led in Mexico. And she wrote to me, it's not that love is blind, she said, it's not love that is blind. Listen to that. It's not love that is blind. And this is quite significant in the context of what we have talked, but also significant in very many contexts. I would say that love has 20-20 vision. And more than that, love has the ability to allow us, to permit us, to create the conditions under which we can see things as they are. Let's sit quietly for two, three minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.